And uh, one of the other perks of going to the Big Yellow Mug is you get to see our faces. They're masked, of course, but if you like us, then you get to come see us. Uh, hey, good morning. I'm so glad to see you guys here. My name is Christian. I'm on staff here at the Christian Life Center. As many of you know, I get to oversee our high school program, uh, and so I love journeying with our high school students. We actually had a, a massive Nerf night here on Thursday, so if you find any Nerf darts or ping pong balls, it's probably my fault. Uh, you can keep those and take those home. Uh, and I also get to oversee and work alongside some wonderful people in our AV team, uh, which has been a very interesting season to do AV because I feel like uh, it's kind of accelerated with the pandemic, and so um, they've been doing an awesome job. They're kind of unsung heroes, and actually I want to take a moment, if we could just thank them for all they do because they come here so early, you can't even see them, um, but we got some awesome people on our team. So, um, we are so glad you're here. If you're new to the Christian Life Center, we welcome you. If you've been here uh, for a while or maybe just the last few weeks, we welcome you. We are in the middle of our series, Jesus for President. Uh, and if you are a human being in America, you're probably a little overwhelmed by the kind of polarized political climate that we are in. Maybe you're getting a bunch of mailers to your mailbox. Maybe you've seen the smear campaigns on TV. You're seeing all the commercials. You're getting texts phone calls. My phone's been blown up. You're getting emails. You're getting just about everything. And if you're anything like me, it stirs up a little bit of anxiety in you. It, uh, it overwhelms you a little bit. I get a little concerned when I see the state of our nation, some of the things happening out there, right? And if you're anything like me, you might ponder for a moment, what is God doing in all of this? What is God up to? What can I learn from this? What can we learn from God in all of this? And so what we wanted to do is have this series called Jesus for President where we work through some of that stuff because we understand our God is a God of all spheres, of the public sphere, the private sphere, and the political sphere, right? And so it makes sense that we try and figure out what exactly is God up to in all of this. And another thing that we wanted to try and accomplish is to differentiate where we put our vote and where we put our hope. You see, we want to convince you guys, we want you walking away from here convinced that we can put our hope in a candidate, but we should not ever put our hope in a candidate. We put our vote in a candidate, but never put our hope in a candidate. So we want you guys to walk away convinced of that. But then in addition, we understand that November 3rd is coming. It's a big voting day, and we want to create a space where we can process theologically what all we do as Christians. What does it look like to be a Christian today and to vote in this election? What does it look like to be a Christian today and participate in what is happening? And so we hope in this series, even today, to work through some of this stuff. And let me tell you what— <clears throat> I'll be the first one to tell you that I won't do it perfectly. I'll stand up here and teach today. It's definitely not going to be perfect. It's not going to be pristine. And so what I want to invite you to do is if you have questions or comments or thoughts, please go ahead and send them to us at overtime at clcfamily.church. And what we do on Tuesday is we have a podcast where we work through some of that stuff. So you can take your phone out wherever you are. If you're at home watching, on the couch, if you're in the parking lot, if you're right here, you can take your phone out and say, hey, you said this, but I have a question about that. So please feel free to do that because um, I kind of consider this a process that we are all, are all on together, okay? Um, and so I'm going to kind of recap where we are at, because this is week three, and so I want to recap the last couple of weeks real quick. The first week, Josh started this series, Jesus for President, and he highlighted the greater candidate. We realize that there is a greater candidate, unlike any candidate that we have seen before. It's not Trump, it's not Biden, it's not John the Baptist, it's Jesus, right? And there was this, uh, there was this account, this instant at his baptism where he's set apart as the Son of God. So there's a greater candidate, 
that candidate is here, right? And then week two last week, Josh invited us to take a breath, to take a breath and realize the work of the greater candidate, because the greater candidate is up to incredible things, right? He talked about the covenants, his genealogy, and how it is that Jesus is making all things new again. So in the middle of a political climate like this, we can breathe because there is hope, right? And that was week two. Today we find ourselves in week three about how Jesus is our model politician. And I was really stressing about this because um, I thought, uh, I was really stressing. I thought it'd be appropriate maybe. I'm going to go on a limb and say I'm going to share what candidate I'm voting for. I'm going to share uh, and I'll let you guys kind of, you know, see it. We'll process it together. I encourage maybe you consider voting for him. But I'm going to share who I think we should vote for. And then we're going to work through it today and, uh, and go from there. And so for this presidential election, I think we should vote for Rick Astley because he's never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never run around and desert you. I won't sing the rest of the song for you. It's a little bit of a joke. Uh, but we're going to cover our model politician. I actually didn't put it up here. I would never write who I'm voting for up here. It's in the bulletins, though, so you can check that out if you have those. Sorry if you're at home. You can't see it. I'm kidding. It's not in there, too. I see some people looking down. Anyway, our objective here is not to tell you, hey, you have to do this, you have to vote for this. Again, what we want to do is create a framework by which we can process what is God up to and what is God inviting us to do. And so that's what we hope to accomplish today. And I know a lot of times when we are processing who we're going to vote for, there's one thing that a lot of us probably look to. It's their backstory, right? Their history, what they have or what they have not accomplished, right? And so when we think of Trump, we think he was a businessman. He owned businesses, right? When we think of Joe Biden, we think he was a politician for so many years, right? And I know we all have varying opinions about whether or not these things qualify them or disqualify them from the presidential seat, right? Um, but we do that. We look at their backstory. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to look at the backstory of this greater candidate, we're going to look at some incredible moments in Jesus' life that shaped him to be our greater candidate. And that's what we are going to accomplish today. And as you guys know, we are in the book of Luke. We're going through the book of Luke, right? Luke wrote this text for us so that we would have certainty. He's writing to a group of people who are also in political upheaval. There were a lot of things going on, a lot of people fighting for power. And so he's trying to write to give them absolute certainty that this greater candidate is our candidate, that we can put our hope in this candidate, right? And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today, which is the story of Jesus' temptation, which I know some people are like either really intrigued or like, I don't want to read this story because it's kind of confusing, right? The Son of God being tempted doesn't make sense, but we're going to work through that today. Um, before we jump into that, I just want to remind us uh, what, the pas what passages led up to today's passage because they're actually really important for our ability to understand what is happening in Luke 4. And so if you guys remember a couple weeks ago, we were in Luke 3, um, which talked about Jesus' baptism. This really awesome, profound moment when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. And what happens, right? The clouds open up, the Spirit descends like a dove, and you hear the voice of God say, this is my Son, the Beloved, whom I am well pleased, right? That is the baptism. That's this profound moment. And then right after that, Luke, I don't know what he was thinking, uh, but he starts to write this riveting ge genealogy, right? Uh, when you just hear, you read a list 
of names. It's probably one of the more dull parts of the book. But you see this genealogy, and there's something important about it. Because what, Jesus, uh, what Luke is doing is he's connecting Jesus to Adam in this genealogy. And so what Luke, Luke accomplishes in Luke 3 is he's saying this is the Son of God, but this, this guy's a lot like us. This is the Son of God, but he is also one of us, right? And so it's really important. He's trying to legitimize the ministry of Jesus because in ancient Rome, if you had, uh, if you had statistics that like, had age or if you had a, just kind of a genealogy, people looked for that and that validated things. And so Luke is validating Jesus as a person saying, hey, pay close attention. This candidate is really important, right? And so he's saying he's a son of God and he's one of us. And then we find ourselves in Luke 4, which is probably one of the more crucial moments. It's the last preparatory event for Jesus' ministry. The last thing that we see happen in the scriptures before Jesus starts his three-year ministry. And so by looking at this passage today, Luke 4, I'm convinced that we can see what a model candidate looks like. I'm convinced that we can also learn a bit more about how God invites us to anticipate and participate in the coming kingdom as Christians in the 21st century. So hang tight. This is going to be my voting booth today, actually. Uh, I'm going to use it to kind of help visualize some of the decisions that Jesus is making. And the first thing that we're going to vote on, let's see if I can rip this well enough. There we go. Is, uh, was it a good idea to start the sermon with a joke about who to vote for? Was it? I was going to do hard no, but uh, apparently some people say yes. So uh, thanks for your feedback there. Um, so I'm going to be using that today as we kind of journey through the sermon. Um, but before we jump in, I want to do this. Can I pray real quick? Let's pray together. God, thanks for encountering us here. Thanks for being here. Um, thanks for wel- welcoming us into this place, and thanks uh, for letting us sing these songs, for giving us breath in our lungs, for giving us this space, for giving us this, this equipment that we can use just to sing praises to you. God, we pray that we would encounter you here today, that you would speak to us, that these would not be my words, but yours. Give us clarity in, in this cloudy season of life and this difficult season of life. Help us understand more fully what it means to anticipate in and participate in the coming kingdom of God. And so enable us to learn more today, God. We love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 4. Let's get started in verse 1 right here. Here we go. Luke 4 verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. That's uh, not a place you want to go after the Jordan. So here we have Jesus is in the Jordan. He just gets baptized, has this profound encounter with God, and then the Holy Spirit decides to lead him to the wilderness, which is a great place of isolation. If you actually look at the Greek word for wilderness, it's eremos, which means place of isolation. And so Jesus is going from this place of great encounter with the Holy Spirit and God identifying him as his son, right, to a place of great isolation. Does not sound uh, very exciting. I don't know if I would have wanted to follow the Spirit in that moment, but that's what Jesus does, right? Uh, I remember when I was in youth group, we'd go to these retreats. 
Uh, ben was there because he was my youth pastor. We go to these retreats at North Bay, and I remember I was a high schooler, and I just have profound encounters with like God and community. And I remember coming back from these things like pumped. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to tell all my friends about Jesus. It's going to be awesome, right? But then when you get home from the retreat, you're kind of like thrust back into reality, and you got like school. I was an awkward high school student. I was failing like geometry quizzes and stuff like that, uh, and I was just thrust back into reality, and I would just get back to school, and I'd be like, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me, right? Uh, and I say some of this in jest. It's kind of a joke, but here is what, what's happening with Jesus is he's going from a place of great encounter to a place of great isolation, a place almost void of life. What we see here is, is a profound transition. And so if Christ would vote, let's see. If Christ would vote to follow the Spirit into the wilderness, I'm sure he'd probably cross this out, say, I'm going to follow the Spirit, right? And so he decides to follow the Spirit from a place of great encounter to a place of great isolation. And so full of the Spirit, he withdraws to the wilderness as God intended. The question that comes to my mind, maybe your mind, is for what purpose do they do this? For what purpose do they go to the wilderness? We're going to continue on in verse 2. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. So there's a lot going on here. A lot going on here. So uh, I want to start with this. So did Jesus go to the wilderness just to starve and be tempted? Like that sounds confusing. We're going to work through those things. The first thing I want to work through is the temptation. So... Right? Jesus is the Son of God, but then he's also one of us. And so Jesus, as human, is vulnerable to the very things that we are vulnerable to, which is trials and temptation, right? And so here he is in the desert being tempted by the devil for 40 days because he as a human is vulnerable to these things. And 40 days is a long time to be tempted, y'all. I mean, I can't even imagine that. And so here he is, he's in the devil, tempted, but then he's also starving. And I was thinking, like, why, what, like, is he just like, I'm not going to eat for 40 days. It's going to be awesome, right? No. Uh, if you actually read Matthew's account of this same story, he includes an extra detail that helps us give context to what's happening here. So, Jesus went in the wilderness to fast. He was fasting. He was uh, separating himself from these encounters to encounter God in a new way. And fasting was and still is a spiritual discipline by which one forsakes food in order to receive from and rely on God. Jesus decided to fast for 40 days because what's he doing? He's preparing for his ministry, right? This is the last thing that's happening before his ministry, and he wants to make sure he's ready. So he's in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. And anyone reading this text in that context would see the number 40. That would stick out to them for a couple reasons. Uh, 40, the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, the wilderness for 40 years, right? And then Elijah and Moses, these, these greats in the Jewish tradition, also fasted for 40 days. And so what Luke is doing here is he's tying the plight of Jesus to the plight of the Israelites. He's saying, look, Jesus is experiencing what you have experiencing because he's the son of God, but he's also one of us, right? And so this would make any person reading it pay close attention. This candidate's different. This person's way different, right? So they're paying close attention at this point. And the detail that I thought was really interesting that he includes is he was famished. 
Now, I know when we, uh, when we read that, when I've read that before, I just thought, like, oh, he's hungry. Like, he could go for a cheesesteak or something, or he could swing by Wawa, you know? Um, but I want to identify, like, he was, not, he was not just hungry. He was famished. famished. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And 40 days, a lot of times people go up to 40 days because at that point, your body will start to be damaged in ways that it cannot be repaired. And, um, and I'd like to say it this way. Um, and I'm going to be candid here. I'm going to be honest for a second. I don't think I can ever say, and I know I say this from a place of privilege too, um, but I don't think I can ever say that I've ever been famished or hungry, right? Like, yeah, I've been mildly inconvenienced where I've gone six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours without food but I've never been famished. And maybe some of us in here, we say, yeah, you know, I've never been famished. And so when we read this, we shouldn't think Jesus is experiencing a mild inconvenience. No, his body was approaching death in some ways, right? He is famished. And so let's not overlook that when we read this passage, right? He is in great agony here. It's not any mild inconvenience. And he endures this, remember, in order to prepare himself for one of the most important ministries, movements, and campaigns that we will ever know. Knowing that the salvation of the world, of all nations, all peoples, all governed beings is contingent on his ministry. And it was at the end of the, this 40-day period where Jesus was the most tired, the most um, exhausted, and this is when the three temptations come about, right? At the end of the 40 days. And so we're going to continue on in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And it's interesting here that uh, Satan, this devil, uh, the Greek is diabolos, I believe, and it means a false accuser or adversary. And it's interesting that how he addresses Jesus, he says, son of God, because where do we hear that before? The chapter before when he is uh, revealed to us as the son of God at his baptism, right? And the Greek actually would be better said since you are the son of God. Not necessarily if you are the son of God, but since you are the son of God, right? Which bears more impact because um, since you are the son of God, we all know you can turn this rock into bread. Since you are the son of God, we know you are capable of providing for yourself. So go ahead, do it, right? Since you are the Son of God, turn this loaf into bread. Violate your fast. Violate your ministry. Violate your mission. And just eat. We know you're hungry, right? You're famished. And then another thing that I thought was really interesting, and I've never, uh, I've never understood this or noticed this before when I was reading this passage. Uh, you see, Satan is saying, turn this stone into bread. It's not just saying any stone. Turn this stone into bread. And so what you find is the Greek word for this is hautas, which is a demonstrative pronoun, meaning that Satan is not just picking any rock and saying, hey, turn that one to bread, turn that. He actually picked up a specific rock, or he's referencing a specific rock, saying, turn this rock to bread. Now what's interesting, really interesting, is this. Uh, scholars suggest that what was happening is that Satan may have been referencing to a stone of Judah. And if you know anything about the desert in this time, stones of Judah were stones in the wilderness that looked a lot like bread. They resembled, they had a strong resemblance with the loaf of bread. And so Satan's not just saying, hey, turn a stone to bread. He is pointing to a specific rock and saying, turn this stone to bread. Look at it. It looks like bread and we know you're hungry. We know you can eat. Turn this stone 
to bread, right? Such deceptive semblances would intensify the pangs of hunger and add to the temptation the additional torture of an excited imagination, right? I don't know if any of you have seen the show Survivor. It's this game show where they're kind of on this um, island in the middle of the ocean and they're competing to win some prize money or whatever. But uh, they only eat rice for like the 30 days they're on the island. Uh, And sometimes they'll have these competitions where they're competing for not only immunity to stay on the island, but they're they're competing for food. And it's interesting, the host at the beginning of the game will say, hey, today's prize you're competing for, and it'll be like PB&J. But you got to see their reactions, man. They're melting over this PB&J because they've only had rice for so many days. And they're like, I want that PB&J. And they're falling over each other because they're so excited at the possibility of eating peanut butter and jelly. And it's just so interesting because this is what Satan is doing in this moment. He's saying, I know you're hungry. I know you're famished. Eat this bread. Turn this rock into bread, right? It's just so fascinating. But get this. This is not the first time we see a son of God tempted by food, right? If you recall the genealogy right before this passage, and what Josh said last week, Adam was identified as the son of God. You can read it right before in Luke 3. Adam was the son of God, and what was Adam's downfall? He was tempted by food, right? We see a son of God tempted by food in both instances, right? So what Luke is doing is he's tying Jesus' experience of the great temptation to the very moment that got us all into this mess, right? He's tying this story into the very moment when Adam and Eve fell and got us into the trouble that we are in. And Adam, the son of God, did not do it perfectly, but Jesus does. Jesus responds differently than Adam. Let's look here in verse 4. In great anguish, in, while he was famished, Jesus responds. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. He responds, it is written. He's referencing scripture. He's actually referencing Deuteronomy 8.3, which was an instruction given to the Israelites when they were experiencing, uh, spending 40 years in the desert, right? He's tying it all together here. He's saying, one does not live by bread alone. And if you go to that passage in Deuteronomy and read the whole thing, it says, one does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And as I was studying this, I was trying to like wrestle and trying to figure out what exactly does that mean? Does, you know, does that mean I just forsake food and just read my Bible? Like what, what exactly does that mean? And so I was grappling with it, and the best kind of conclusion that I could come up to was this. And so a couple, about a month ago, I think some of y'all know this, my dad had passed away about a month ago from cancer. And we had his service in here, and the pastor who was speaking that day for my, servi- uh, for my dad's service said, these words, and I believe he was quoting C.S. Lewis. He says, we don't have souls. We are souls. We have bodies, right? We don't have souls. We are souls. We have bodies. So perhaps what is happening with Israel, and perhaps what is happening with us, is we've become so preoccupied with feeding our body that we neglect to feed our soul, right? We neglect to feed our soul. We become so preoccupied with squaring away our security, our pantries, our bank accounts, our safety, right, that we fail to feed our souls. We fail to trust in God's providence. We fail to give God any ounce of control in our lives. 
and we just fail to follow the Spirit's lead, right? And so hence why Christ says we need something more. He's not saying don't live by bread. He says we can't live by bread alone. Stop just feeding your bodies. Feed your soul, right? We need more. Our very souls are at stake, right? Too often we give in to the temptation and do absolutely everything we can to take care of our bodies, which will pass, neglecting to take care of our very souls, which will live, right? And I'm not suggesting, like, food's not important, right? It is. We all know that. I'm going to go eat a good sandwich after church today. Um, what I'm suggesting is that we cannot live by bread alone. It must be complemented with an earnest desire to feed our souls by tethering ourselves to God. It's probably a lot better to starve the body than it is to starve the soul. So here Jesus is in the desert, starving himself so that he can feed on God, that he could tether himself to the will and the mission of God so that he can prepare himself for one of the most important ministries that we will see, right? Jesus does what Adam could not do. He does what Adam could not do, and in turn, he subverts the devil's plans to undermine the very mission that Christ is set here to do, right? And so, if Christ was voting, and we see it very evidently here, am I going to do bread or fast? And I'm going to add this one, too, because he was God, so he knew pizza existed, and he could have made a pizza, guys. But he does not do that. He does not do bread. He chooses to fast to feed his soul and to rely on God as opposed to relying on bread alone, right? And so the next passage says, it's a second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Here's another attempt, round two in the ring, of Satan trying to tempt Jesus, right? And it's very interesting, because uh, I think we look at that and we're like, oh, Satan has no authority. Like, Satan can't do that, right? He, he can't do that. And so we look at that and we're like, oh, that would have been easy. Just like, no, God's God. Like, he's the king of kings, Lord of lords. I don't need to trust you. But in that context, if you actually look at scripture, a lot of times they reference Satan as the god of the world not capital G, lowercase g. He was the God of the world because he un they understood Satan has influence. <laughs> Satan has power. Satan does have authority and can actually do things. And so that changes the game because here we do have the God of the world offering a famished carpenter lost in the wilderness the opportunity to say, hey, you can have all this. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do these things. You don't have to do the mission. You don't have to starve yourself. All you got to do is worship me. And this is all yours. And so, understanding that he is the God of the world, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, I believe, he calls Satan the God of the world. Uh, that might have been a bit more tempting to Jesus in that moment, right? And how many of us would be tempted to comply with that too? If we were offered safety and security, stability in 2020, especially in the next four years, we don't know what's happening. You know, how much of us, if we were offered those things, would be like, yes please, I don't want to spend another moment anxious about my bank account, about what's in my pantry. Like, I don't want to worry about those things. And so how many of us would be tempted to comply with that request, right? 
Even those closest to Jesus, the disciples, uh, you find in their ministry that they become preoccupied with power. Because they're like, who's going to sit next to Jesus when he's at his throne? Like, I want to do it. No, I want to do it, right? And so let's not think that we would make the right decision, right? So Jesus, being God and man, right, knows that the devil is the father of lies, right? Yeah, he might be the God of the world, but he's also the father of lies. And he trusts in the authority of his own father, right? And so, knowing these things, Jesus responds. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Here it is once again, you hear those words, it is written. He's referencing Deuteronomy 6.13, which was another instruction given to the Israelites in their 40 years in the desert. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And so, in great anguish, in great hunger, maybe in great fear of what is to come, he decides to remain tethered to the Father and tethered to the coming kingdom, not any temporary kingdom, right? And so in this moment of great temptation, he gets another opportunity to vote. Will I worship the ruler of the world or will I worship the Lord your God? And he decides to remain steadfast. I'm going to worship God. I'm not going to worship you, right? And it's the second attempt. Now we get to the third attempt to derail Christ, to derail the mission of Christ. Um, and it is this in verse 9. The devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stones. This is the third attempt, and we see uh, Satan's methodology is actually changing a little bit, and we'll understand why in a second. But here we are in the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. The pinnacle of the temple may have been like the southeast corner of the temple, um, which is understood to be about 300 feet over the floor of the Kidron Valley. So if anyone jumped, man, they ain't going to make it, right? And it's 300 feet above that floor. But we also have to understand the temple was also a very central place in their culture. And so there's probably a lot of people walking about. There's, in fact, roads all over the place because it was center of commerce. It was center of government and religion in a lot of ways, right? And so it was understood that there's a lot of people going about. And so if Jesus did do something like this, and if the angels did sweep him out of the sky, you can almost bet that a lot of people would follow Jesus, right? Like if I saw some guy be swept out of the sky by some angels, I might be curious and I might say, I think I want to follow you. Like, you look trustworthy. They just saved you, right? And so the temptation here is not only safety, but it's, hey, you can start your ministry off really well. You can start your church off really well. Your business, you know, whatever you are here for, you can start it really, really well. Just, just jump. We know you're going to be safe, but you're going to get a pretty cool following, right? And again, he makes a, a divine, an appeal to Christ's divine status. Since you are the Son of God. We know that God's going to save you. Since you are the Son of God, we know God's going to protect you. We have nothing to worry about. So just jump, right? And the, the way that the devil changes methods here is he actually quotes Scripture, right? We see Christ quote Scripture the two times before, but now Satan's like, I have an idea. Let me quote Psalm 91. And so he reads a passage to Jesus, and he's like, oh, it's right here. It's right in the Bible, right? But the issue is, is he misquotes it. He actually omits a word which changes the whole meaning of the text. And how often do we do this? 
How often do we see uh, people running for office try and use Scripture or use something as a means to justify their ideology, right? We see people, uh, you know, take Scripture and abuse it and bend it for their will. In the theology world, we call this eisegesis. It's when, it's when I am using my ideas, my ideology, and I am forming my understanding of the text around my ideas around my ambitions, around my interests. And so I'll read a scripture and say, this is what it means because I put my meaning on the text. But what Jesus was doing when he was quoting scripture and what God invites us to do is exegesis. I, I, I promise if you like are at a, friend, at a party with your friends or maybe Thanksgiving, you, you use these words, you're going to make a lot of friends. People are going to be like, wow, he knows some cool theology words. But uh, God's inviting us to exegesis. Let the scripture speak to you. Let it shape your ideas. Abandon anything else and come to the scriptures and just let them form and shape you. And that's what Christ does, right? So like Satan, in an effort to persuade ourselves and sometimes others, I think sometimes we're often tempted to succumb to the temptation of misusing scripture. We're merely using it to support our agendas, which let's be very careful we don't do that in this season. I know we all have very strong opinions about what is about to happen. Um, let's just be very careful that we're letting God speak to us, right? And so Jesus, in recognition of this blatant misuse of Scripture, responds in verse 12. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is Christ's last rebuttal. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which once again is instruction given to the Israelites when they were spending 40 years in the desert. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It actually says, don't test God thoroughly. Don't test him beyond the, like, just don't test God, right? And so he makes this rebuttal. And what we learn here is that scripture is actually very central uh, in our ability to overcome temptation, right? Scripture is very central in this process. So in this moment of great temptation, Christ is given the opportunity to for spiritual pride and to start his ministry really well, right? Or to not test God. And he chooses, I'm going to remain tethered to God. I'm not going to test God. I'm not going to test God, right? And so, the last verse, verse 13, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. So these are three attempts to dismantle Christ. Not just to dismantle Christ, but to dismantle the very thing that he is here to do, which is to be the sinless savior of the world. And he's trying to dismantle this mission and this candidate, right? But each time he fails. And it's interesting because it says, uh, it says, you know, he'll be back at an opportune time. He's going to wait until another opportune time. And I think we see an opportune time when Jesus is once again experiencing vulnerability and he's in the garden of Gethsemane, right? He's in the garden praying begging and asking God, like, God, if this is not, like, could you just take this cup from me? Experiencing temptation, like, ah, you know, I know I've just done three years of ministry, but if you could take this cup from me, that would be awesome. But, but, not my will, but your will be done, right? And where else do we see an instance of a battle of the wills? But with Adam and Eve in the garden. Here they are. Do we take the fruit? Do we not, right? Do we take the fruit or do we not? But Jesus does it perfectly when he prays the prayer, not my will, but your will be done. 
He identifies his needs, the things that he wants, the things that he's tempted to follow. He identifies these. He calls them out. And then he says, I'm going to put all of that aside and I'm going to follow the will of God. I'm going to tether myself to the will of God and let everything else subside. And that's what a model politician does, right? They're tempted with great power, great authority, great wealth, great popularity. And a model politician should put all of that aside and say, I'm here to serve the people. I'm here to follow God, right? In the case of Jesus, he is tethering himself to the will of God. And he prays, not my will, but your will be done. And we see that. He decides to tether himself to the will of God, right? Perhaps he went through the... uh, the fast experience for this very moment. Maybe, right? That's my kind of politician. So you guys know me. You know I like to kind of wrap up our sermons with some observations that I, that I make as I read the scriptures. These are my observations. You know, I'm sure when we read scripture, God's revealing things to us. I just like to think that, hey, these are some of the things that God revealed to me as I was working through these things. And so I want to go through them one by one. The first one is this. <clears throat> our model politician knows a word, Right? Our model politician knows the word. In each instance, Christ methodically uh, overcame temptation by quoting Scripture. And you have to think of it this way. Temptations, they're just false promises, right? Temptations, these things that we are tempted to follow, they always promise to deliver, but they never do, right? They never, you know, they never fulfill us. They never satisfy us. And so it makes sense to combat false promises with truth, right? And so that's what Jesus does. He turns to scripture, and he's saying, I'm not going to follow these false promises. I'm going to follow truth. And so he knows the word, and he lets it, he lets it enable him to overcome these temptations. But the issue is, is Satan also knows scripture too. Kind of. He misused it a little bit. But Satan knows scripture. He quoted Psalm 91, so maybe it doesn't end at just knowing scripture. Maybe there's a bit more. And the second thing is this. Our politician abides by the word, right? He says, he says, man does not live by bread alone, and then he continues to not eat bread, right? He says, uh, man worships only God, and then he does it. He worships God. Man does, uh, don't put your God to the test, and then he refuses to put God to the test. So he's saying scripture, he knows it, but then he's also allowing it to steer his life. He's allowing it to guide him. He's leaning into it. He's letting it live out of him, right? And so when God calls us to live by bread alone, or to not live by bread alone, to worship God only, to not put God to the test, to love your neighbor, to love your enemies, to love those on the other side of the aisle, to care for the poor, and to worship God in spirit and truth, model politicians do it. And this is what Christ did, and this is what Christ would have us do. Our model politician knows the word. Our model politician abides by the word. He tethered himself to the will of God and to the word of God and let those things help him make his decisions, right? And the last one, probably the most important one, is this. Our model politician keeps his word. We, uh, it's funny, look around at the, uh, the debates and stuff and, um, you know, all the ads and stuff that are happening, and you see a lot of promises, right? I promise that this will happen. I promise that I'll do this. I promise that I'll do this, this, and this, right? And uh, some people are really good at giving promises, but, you know, will they follow through? We don't know. We've seen, you can 
look back years. Some politicians don't keep promises, right? But our model politician does. <laughs> Jesus keeps his word. God promised to make a way, and we talked about this, right? The, the covenants from last week. God is making a way for our, for our to receive salvation and life eternal in him. God is making a way. He's making promises. He's making covenants. And guess what? He keeps his word so we can breathe a sigh of relief. And so Adam, the son of God, got us into this mess. But Jesus, the son of God, gets us out of it. And that's his promise to us. In the story, Jesus did perfectly in the wilderness what Adam did not do perfectly in the garden. In the story, Jesus did perfectly in the wilderness what the Israelites could not do perfectly in the garden. In this story, the devil tries to undermine and ruin the plan for which Jesus came to be the sinless Savior for the people. Yet amidst great trial and tribulation, he kept his promise, endured to the very end, embraced a rugged cross that we may be able to embrace salvation and the love of God. And that is reason enough to celebrate and sing, even in one of the worst political climates that we've seen. God keeps his word. He keeps his promise. And so I want to kind of share the implications for us, because I know what some of us might be thinking. Like, this is awesome, like, right? This is reason to celebrate and to sing. But Christian, November 3rd's coming, and Jesus isn't on the ballot. Like, our model candidate is not on the ballot. So what ought we do? And my answer is that we follow Christ's example, that we wholly tether ourselves to the will and the coming kingdom of God. Not to any candidate, not to any party, but we tether ourselves to God. And I'm not saying here, don't vote. Y'all should vote. I'm voting, right? Um, but we need to tether ourselves and to hope in Christ. Place our vote in a candidate and place our hope in Jesus. And so um, the first example that we learn is uh, to know Scripture, right? Meticulously study it. And I'm not saying like come with your agenda and then place it on the scripture. No, leave everything behind for a minute and just sit with the scripture and just beg that God would reveal himself to you, that God would reveal his will for you. And I encourage you, sit with those you disagree with and study the Bible together. Sit with those on the other side of the aisle and study the Bible together. Wrestle through it because we are all bound and united by Christ. And so it makes sense that we do this together. Sit with people and meticulously study the scriptures. And let it speak to your ideologies. Don't let your ideologies speak to it. The second thing is to abide by it. If we truly believe that this is the word of God given to us, then it makes sense that we let it live through us, right? It, it makes sense that we let it live in us. It makes sense that it informs the decisions we make, uh, the movements we make, uh, and all of these, these things, even how we vote, right? And so we vote every day by what kind of kingdom we are embracing, by how we treat our neighbor, by how we live, by how we let Scripture live through us, right? How we treat our enemies. We're living, we're living our religion every day, whether or not we know it or not. Um, but the hope is that are we living in reflection of what God's inviting us to? Are we participating in and anticipating in kingdom culture by how we love our neighbor, right? And uh, in how you vote, vote for the candidate that doesn't just talk about the ideologies of Jesus, but actually embodies them. And guess what? Both of them are not going to do it well. And I know, like, I could say that and maybe, like, chuckle a little bit because we're like, oh, my gosh, like, both candidates have so many 
flaws. Like, what do we do? But hey, they're just like Adam. They're just like us. We're not going to do it perfectly. And that's why this third thing is most important. We place our votes in candidates, but we do not place our hope in candidates. We place our votes in candidates, but not our hope in these candidates. And I'm going to invite the band to actually come up as I wrap up. We are placing our hope not in a candidate, not in a party, not in a four-year term, but we are going to tether ourselves to the promises of God and the coming kingdom. And we're going to tether ourselves to the coming king, right? We can hope in the promises of God because guess what? He keeps his word. He's trustworthy. He's the perfect candidate. He is our model candidate. And so if we can bank on anything, it's the word of God. And even the devil in his greatest attempts to undermine it and subvert it proves unsuccessful. And so we have an opportunity to hear to trust in the word of God, to study the word of God, to let it live through us and to trust in the word of God as we navigate this season. We're actually going to finish with a song that I really love and the band really loves called Man of Your Word. God keeps his word, and we can trust in that. And so I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we will sing and celebrate together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know you keep your word. We know that the best is yet to come. We know that we can have hope, not in anything that our government is doing, not in these candidates, not for November 3rd, but we know that we have hope in you. And so God, we respond to your invitation to participate in and anticipate your coming kingdom by letting it come about now, by bringing heaven to earth and how we treat each other and how we treat our enemies, how we treat those on the other side of the aisle and how we navigate the season. And so I pray that you would just be so present in our lives. Empower us and give us your spirit. And may we not just have your spirit, but may we then follow your spirit even into the wilderness. God, thank you for being here. Thank you for encountering us here. And thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's all stand up and sing together. Sorry.
keep your promises. If you said it, we believe it. If you said it, if you said it, we believe it. today. I hope you receive that today, that God is a man of his word. Thank you, Christian, for your words today through him. Um, we are so appreciative, and I just want to leave you with these words. Of course, I have a passcode on because I have teenagers. Um, I want to leave you with these words as you go today, which is from Colossians three sixteen to 17. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we hope that you have a great week. We hope that you'll join us again next week. And visit the coffee shop and join our Eagles game this afternoon. Have a great day.